All right, hello, and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 24. On this episode, I'm joined with Tyne Morgan, host of U.S. Farm Report and On the Road with Machine Repeat. Tyne has lots of great, a lot of great insight into what's happening in ag, and I'm lucky to have her on my podcast. Tyne, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Casey. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. So before we get started, I always like to kind of get a little background on my guests and, and, and what their uh, kind of history is. So tell me a little bit about Tyne Morgan. Yeah, well, Missouri girl, born and raised, moved to Indiana uh, about six years ago, but, you know, was born in Missouri, um, small town outside of Kansas City called Lexington, Missouri. I'm the daughter of, a, of an ag teacher and a librarian. I mean, my family farms, um, you know, my dad's side and my mom's side, uh, but my dad was an ag teacher, and that's kind of how I started my love for agriculture was just uh, being in FFA and, and doing some of those things in, in high school. So I started doing farm broadcasting when I was 16 for a local radio station. They had interviewed me for, for FFA, for an FFA interview, and afterwards um, approached me about a possible part-time job, you know, kind of an internship. Uh, my sister thought that I would be just filling up coffee cups and kind of running errands and, and doing that kind of thing. And initially, I thought that may be what it entailed, but it was, it was so much more. Um, in three days, I learned how to read the commodity market, livestock, crops, um, you know, all across the board. And, and I spent the rest of my high school career and part of college at that radio station uh, as, a, as a farm broadcaster. So you talk about jumping into the thick of things. Uh, that's kind of how I, how I learned everything. Um, worked for Brownfield Ag News in college and just thought there was something more that I that I wanted to do and, and new TV had always been a passion but wasn't sure how to really get into it and so majored in ag journalism with an emphasis in broadcast at the University of Missouri and Columbia I mean you really don't get, get much niche than that um, ag journalism with an emphasis in, in broadcast so with that, that's where I kind of got into TV. Um, didn't want to do local news. Figured out real soon, um, doing a couple stories about agriculture and you know to an audience that really didn't understand agriculture. Um, it didn't set well with them. Got some got some hate mail. Had a had a story written about me in the Chicago or I'm sorry in the the uh, Columbia Tribune that was not positive at all. And just learned you know maybe I was too passionate about agriculture and, and local news wasn't for me. So went out to PR for an ag company uh, for a few years. Ended up getting married, moving to Texas for about six months, lived in the panhandle of Texas in 2011 in the, the middle of the, the worst drought, one of the worst droughts they'd ever seen. Uh, and then we got relocated into northern Indiana, um, southern Michigan. Got a call one day from Farm Journal Broadcast, um, Ag Day and U.S. Farm Report, asking if I was interested in, in a job uh, when I moved up here. Had no idea that, that both TV programs were based in South Bend, Indiana, uh, but made the decision to get back into into the journalism field and, and really haven't looked back. So for a few years, uh, spent a lot of time on the road as both Ag Day and U.S. Farm Report National Reporter. And then about, um, it's been about three years now, uh, they named me host of U.S. Farm Report, the first female host. So that was exciting. You know, at first a little intimidating, knew I had big shoes to fill, but uh, quickly realized I can't look at it as I have big shoes to fill. I need to really, uh, you know, chart my own water and, and, and create my own niche within U.S. Farm Report. So I've tried to do just that, a program that's been on since 1975, just tried to give a fresh twist and really bring the latest ag news uh, to, to those that watch. And then, of course, um, if you're in the, the machinery sector and, and keep a close eye on Machinery Repeat, I also do the news for Machinery Repeat TV, uh, 
I host the off segment and uh, write for AgWeb, Farm Journal, and you can also hear me on, on AgriTalk. So a little bit of multimedia here at Farm Journal, but it's fun because I cover a, a, a territory, uh, a broad you know, range of, of topics, and so no day is the same. So it makes, it makes the job fun. Yep. Well, I really enjoy your, your program, um, U.S. Farm Report, and I get a lot of great information off there, so um, glad you're on there, Time. Um, Thank you. So... This is kind of a busy time of year for everybody. You know, where corn harvest is going on, corn and soybean harvest is going on. We're out here in Nebraska. You know, we got sugar beets and edible beans and, and mm-hmm. corn coming off and everything like that. So it looks like the corn crop just keeps getting bigger every time they have a new crop report, it sounds like. And then, it, you know, with all the delays and with the river traffic and off the Ohio River and the Mississippi, what do you, yeah. when you talk to guys out there and you travel around, what are you hearing and, and what's the temperature of the producer right now? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It really is focused on harvest right now. You know, you look at the harvest progress, looking at yields, uh, looking at trying to move this, this massive crop out. I mean, the latest USDA report for corn harvest, at least, uh, shows 28% of the crop is out. 28% as of October 15th. That compares to 47% was, is the five-year average. I mean, Looking at 28% versus 47%, and most of the, the, the large corn producing states are behind. I mean, the only states that are actually ahead when, we come, when it comes to corn harvest is like North Carolina, um, some of those other southern states that are, are ahead. And so it's a little bit more mixed when it comes to progress. Um, we've seen some of the, the big soybean producing states, they've actually are not too far behind, some of them are actually ahead. But, you know, in the states that are behind, like, let's say, Minnesota, for example, they're way behind when it comes to Last week, it was, they were 40 points behind. This week, I think it's 37 points behind when you look at soybean harvest. So right now, really, I think, you know, the mood is let's just get this crop out of the field. At the same time, uh, you know, we've been keeping an eye on, on river traffic. It's, we knew it was a dry year, and I think I saw um, Noah put out today that it was historic dry levels looking at a lot of the Midwest in September. And we heard from several producers, our own John was talking about how, you know, uninterrupted harvest it was because there just didn't have the rain delay. I was going in late September, um, and, and my dad's helping out with harvest this year, you know, and I didn't think at all because they were running every single day. And so that's great if you're trying to get the crop out of the field. However, the level really are the dry weather was really draining uh, levels on some of the, the major waterways, and that includes the Debbie River. I talked to a farmer near Memphis who was telling me um, he thought he was going to have to stop soybean harvest because there was such a congestion on the Mississippi River down where he was, they were not able to move any crop out. You know, and we're talking about an area that's seen record yields of corn beef, you know, uh, rice, and maybe looking at cotton. And you're looking at really good yields in some of those areas. So it's a really big crop. You know, you know some of these um, firms knew that they were going to have an issue in this crop anyway, and then and then you have some issues on the river. Talked to some guys in Illinois. It was the same thing. Um, these, these grain merchandisers were, were actually suggesting that these farmers hold on to their grain until the situation eased uh, because as the water levels were declining, these barge operators were having to haul at half toe. And, you know, haul at half toe, barge rates were going up. It just was not making sense um, on the op- or on the side to try to take their grain to the 
them. So they were asking the guys to hold on to, to their grain, um, you know, at a time when they were trying to get this crop out because everything was being compounded by all these issues. And then at the same time, you look at the Ohio River, another uh, major waterway. Uh, U.S. Uh, Waterways Council has told us that, I think it was two weeks ago, about 52 and 53, there were some issues with the locks. Um, um, just some mechanical issues. Uh, those are locks that had a lot of issues. They're running on 1920s infrastructure. So it is a very aged lock and dam situation. And then this past week, um, last week it would have been, we heard that actually, you know, we had a lot of rain in some areas and rising river levels had caused lock and dam 52 to shut down momentarily. And that was creating, I think, uh, the last total I heard from uh, U.S. Waterways Council was 600 and some barges that were waiting to get through that one lock because they had to shut down to, the, to the, the rising river levels. I mean, as we know, as I mentioned, this is a key time to try to get this crop out, and there just seems like there's been so many hiccups along the nation's waterways, um, not only with the, the low river levels, the rising river levels, and then that lock of dam, two of those on the Ohio River um, having, you know, malfunctioning. So those were some issues at the same time. But overall, what I'm hearing, uh, Casey, you know, about crop size, and that's really uh, the focus USDA last week with its crop production report um, raised the national corn yield and just slightly trimmed the national soybean yield. But with corn, the saying is, you know, big crops only get bigger. And that's exactly what we're seeing on this corn side. You know, when USDA originally came out in August with their crop production report, and predicted that we would have, it was, you know, originally the, the third largest corn crop ever. I talked to, you know, analysts, farmers, everyone that, that said, this can't be right. I don't know where USDA is getting their data. I don't know where USDA is getting their yield estimates. I'm not sure what they're looking at, but it's not the crop that we're seeing in our backyard. Uh, you know, and, and, and so then you, you move down the road, um, and then we had crop tour, and we were out there, and, you know, there were definitely more issues this year in the cornfields than there were last year. I mean, when you look at the, the record crop that we saw last year, there were definitely more issues. Uh, but it was surprising to see how good some of these yields actually were. Driving by some of these fields, they were ugly. They were yellow. They weren't uniform. They just did not look like a really good crop out there. But then you actually got in the field and you realize we have a pretty darn good corn crop out there, you know, and that speaks volumes to genetics, to farmers, I mean, overall, that you were able to uh, withstand some of these issues that farmers sought planting, whether it be late planting or just the cold weather that we had uh, in the start of it, but yet, the crop is still there. On the soybean side, you know, USDA seems to be growing a little bit more pessimistic on, on soybean yield, and on crop tour, we, we kind of saw that. Um, you know, when we got out in some fields, they looked good. They actually looked really good. But you got out of there and got out in the fields, and maybe some of the top pods just really weren't going out, or um, overall the pods were just really flat and, you know, they're in, in, and uh, needed some rain. And some of those areas did get some rain, but some didn't. So I'm getting mixed yield reactions all across the board. You know, uh, I was in western Western Missouri in September, as I had mentioned, and talked to some farmers here are there that normally would see 50 bushel per acre soybeans. That would be good for them. This year they were expecting to see 80 bushel per acre soybeans. A farmer in that same area was, a, you know, on, on an average year, see uh, corn yields in the range of 140, 150 bushels per acre. That's really good. He said this year he hasn't even seen 140 bushels per acre. 
um, that it's all been above that, a lot of it closer to 200 bushels per acre. Um, so, you know, that, that's, I'm not saying that that's everywhere, but there are some pockets where there are some really good crops out there. What the final verdict will be with USDA, you know, where our national yield and where our crop production um, total numbers will come in, I'm not sure, but it just seems like, you know, USDA gets the hint of, of maybe uh, we will see this, this soybean yield maybe turned again, but some of these analysts I'm talking to, Casey, say, you know, earlier on we really saw some really good yield, but those yield reports are now tapering off, and the, and the yield what they were in the beginning. So possibly we could see USDA trim um, some of the crop size. But overall, you know, when you look at the demand picture, you look at the crop size, you look at the crop that's left over from last year, um, you know, soybeans are a little bit more forgiving than corn. We still have a lot of old crop corn. We still have a, you know, we're sitting on a big crop from last year. We're going to have to see USDA significantly trim uh, this, this yield and this production number, whereas soybean, even if we see them trim it a little bit more, that it could have more of a positive reaction on prices. So I don't know what the final outcome is going to be. We are maybe a little bit more optimistic when it comes to the soybeans than they are corn. But ultimately, that'll be up to final USDA numbers. And, you know, there's so many other factors right now that the market's watching and prices are, are watching right now. We're really focused on the U.S. We're really focused on production. We're focused on harvest. You know, this week we've seen a, earlier on in the week saw a little bit more pressure on prices just because it looked like we would have a nice open window to harvest. And that was actually pressuring prices uh, this week. But at the same time, we're, we're, you know, focusing, starting to focus and shifting the focus in the coming now months onto South America. And they're having some mixed weather down there. And so if we do have some weather hiccups on South America, that could impact our, our prices too. But, you know, it's just you sit here right now and you're, you're, you're sending in your combine, you're driving the combine, you're, you're bringing in a crop, you're kind of analyzing this year, what went right, what went wrong, planning for next year. But there's so many other things going on, uh, uh, you know, with the economy and, uh, around the globe that can impact prices here at home too. Yeah, I'd say, uh, it is kind of a – I had Chip Nelliger on a couple of weeks ago, and, and he was talking about that very thing when it came to, you know, the overall aspect of what was happening in South America and then how the wheat price was going was being affected by the various droughts that are in, you know, Australia and the Black Sea's having trouble getting stuff planted and, and those kind of things. So there is a lot of volatility in the marketplace right now, but that also gives guys lots of opportunities to, to market their grain and, and uh, you know, make some moves to help them get in a better situation. Yeah, and you, know, you can, and, and I know you can get those. I, I get silo focused here, and you know, in the office, you're trying to get something done. You're working. You know, it's, it's so easy to just focus on the task at hand, but there are so many other factors playing into it. Um, so it's just a, kind of a reminder to to keep your eye keep your eye on that as well. Okay, so time now. You've been you've been out with Machinery Pete talking to a bunch of different dealers across the United States. With the current yields that you see happen right now, and, and the various economic pressures that are out there, what are you hearing from dealers about? the effects of, of used equipment and, you know, the sale of new equipment as well. Yeah, it's actually great. Some positive stories. You know, Casey, it, it, it was getting, you're on those machinery peaks and you're looking at a pressured farm economy and there's just not a lot of bright spots out there. Um, but, you know, in September when we were in Missouri, uh, we were with a, a, a local equipment dealer down there and, and they were telling us that as these farmers were harvesting this crop that was much better than what they thought it was going to be this year, it immediately had an impact on sales. 
they, they, they also had a couple deals going on to try to entice them sales, but the momentum and the outlook from farmers just immediately, they were coming in, maybe they needed another combine to handle a bigger crop that they were seeing, or, you know, their grain cart, another tractor, whatever that may be, but it did spur some, some purchases, so that was, that was some, some really good news. And when we talked to farmers there, you know, I said, I asked them, you know, now even in here, you kind of have an idea of what your crop size is going to be, what your yields are going to be. You know, last year I talked to some farmers in certain areas like Southern Illinois, Minnesota, some of those areas where they were able to ask out new prices. And so even though prices have not um, really moved much when you look at, at corn specifically, they were able to outyield that price and in turn had a better financial outlook on, on the year. And that was a surprising turn that, that, that they didn't expect. Well, that was the case for these, these farmers in, in Missouri. They're able to outyield the price, creating a much better situation. So when I was on the road, um, you know, always on the road with, with machinery Pete, and I asked him, um, you know, is this something that, that he sees? And it, it, it is. It's something that he was immediately seeing as well. He said, you know, typically September, October, those months, they typically see slower sales. They see search traffic um, go down, just not as, as strong up here. Uh, but he was actually seeing an uptick, an uptick in search traffic, an uptick in prices. He had a couple sales. Uh, one of them, a larger John Deere tractor, I think sold for the highest price he had seen at an auction in 34 months. So that was something, you know, exciting that he noted. And then he said, you know, as you go into November or December, you typically see an uptick in sales. So he said, you know, he's saying that this September, October, if this momentum continues, we can have a gangbuster ending to, to 2017. Um, you know, and that's really looking at just the used values. And then just uh, recently, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers came out with their monthly flash report. So they do this every month, Casey, uh, looking at, you know, categories like two-wheel drive tractors, under 40 horsepower, over 40 horsepower, um, over 100 horsepower, looking at four-wheel drive tractors, self-propelled combines. And as I read this chart, every month when it comes out, I mean, it's more of the same. The under, uh, you know, the two-wheel drive factors, you know, under 40 horsepower, some of those categories have been performing the best. And when you get down to four-wheel drive factors, uh, those were in the red every month. Well, starting last month, saw a sharp uptick in, in the, the purchases of self-propelled combines. And then for the September report from AEM, uh, they showed uh, four-wheel drive farm tractor sales. Now, this is new tractor sales, but four-wheel drive farm tractor sales were up 25% this September compared to last September. Self-propelled combine sales at 6% this September compared to, to last September. So we're getting momentum in the larger, uh, you know, the larger equipment sector that we really hadn't seen. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing, too. I mean, it seems like the auction market, there's, I, was, I had <clears throat> Greg on it last week talking about this, and, you know, I kind of use the term soft bottom, that there's, there's still some areas that we may have to look for, but there's for the it's starting right. to solidify and they're they're starting to see some some stabilization in the marketplace that we haven't probably seen in the last eighteen months that of, of real stabilization. Yeah, and I don't. <clears throat> he probably pointed out. He, 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 I mean, this is something I've heard him hammer home for the past four months. I mean, it's all about condition, condition, condition. Right. You know, if it's in good condition, then it's going to bring higher dollars. It doesn't matter how how new it is, how used it is. It's all about the condition of the machine. And so even when you look at it, you know, in a time like this, um, it really does pay to take care of to take care of your machine. So what are you seeing now? I mean, you're probably out when you're talking around people. You run across ag lenders all the time, I'm sure. What, what is, what's their reaction to what's going on and how, how are they feeling about um, next year and, and what do they see kind of some of 
sticking points, I guess, for the producers they're working with? Yeah, I just get toasted. Mark speaking had an ad baking friend of mine on Alan Farm Mortgage. I like talking to Alan because he's not only an ad banker and farmer lender, but he's a farmer himself. So he really. You know, he knows what's going on in the field. He completely understands the situation and is looking at it not only from a lender's perspective, but also from a farmer's perspective. Um, and he said kind of in his area, you know, Indiana, kind of Kentucky area. Uh, and it's the same situation. These guys are seeing and these gals are seeing some of the best corn yolk. They are, and it's completely changing, you know, the outlook on the year. Uh, but not every, that's not the story everywhere. There, there's definitely some pain in farm country. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's, it's, corn prices are pretty stagnant. And, you know, when I talk to analysts, it's, it's volatility is what creates opportunity. When you have volatility in the market, that's when you can make sales. That's when you can, you know, make, make some money. And we just have not had that volatility. Um, and so it's, it's hurting a lot of producers. If you have some high cash roots that you weren't able to negotiate down, um, and you look even at, you know, I'm not even talking 350 corn, I mean, you're talking even $4 corn, it just doesn't pencil out for them. And so because we had the equity, you know, kind of built up and we had our liquidity and, and, and cash flow, and look at those situations, um, we had a couple really good years, uh, that, that, that was kind of some cushion for some producers as well. You know, there's a lot of producers out there, unfortunately, that have worked through that just because we have seen commodity prices move so much. And, and so there's some pain out there. And so I asked Alan, I said, you know, Alan, let's say a producer sets down into the paper and numbers just aren't there. They don't work. You know, they don't know what to do. Um, what can you do? And, and he said, you know, my first piece of advice is, is don't panic. Just don't panic. No matter how bad the situation is, don't panic. You've got to be open. You've got to be honest. You need to be con- candid, uh, you know, with your farm lender and some of the other partners in your operation. Uh, but just don't panic. And, you know, if you, if you own land, you look at that as an asset. There's ways to, to utilize that um, and actually make it through these, these tough economic times. So he kind of gave some, some hope out there. But, but like I said, I, I know there's pain out there in the farm country, and there's no way to paint that in a rosy picture. That's just the way it is. We've seen you know, some large operations in North Dakota, large operations in Michigan. We've seen some of the wheels come off of some of those operations um, where they just cannot, with, you know, they just cannot withstand this many years of, of uh, commodity prices the way they are. But Alan's advice, no matter what, is, 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 you know, don't panic and have a candid conversation with your banker because you're not going to get through this alone. You know, it's okay to, to ask for some help and see what can I do and get creative uh, to make it through. The other point, you know, we look a lot at interest rates right now, looking at the Fed, you know, looking at the current economy. Um, do we think that the Fed is going to increase interest rates? And, and he again suggested, um, you know, looking at, at, at locking in some of these interest rates uh, because it's, it's pretty, I mean, it's inevitable that we will see interest rates continue uh, to go up. We just don't know when. And when you look at interest rates today, they're still fairly low when you look at his, historical um, rates. And look at historical averages of, of interest rates. And, you know, he was reminding producers to maybe lock some of those interest rates in. And I asked him, and I said, well, you know, it, it seems like if you know that interest rates are going to go up, it seems like that's something that would be a given, right? I mean, you just lock in those interest rates. And so I asked him, I said, Alan, what, what makes the producer not want to do that? Uh, and he really said it's a matter of fears missing out. And that's kind of, I think, what he also said what we have in, in grain sales. There's some of those producers that are holding out for the, even though maybe they're going to make, make money on a sale, they think if they hold out, they'll get better prices. They think if they hold, maybe get better interest rate. 
Uh, but Alan was just reminding me, you know, as you look at the economic picture, maybe the Fed isn't going to, to raise interest rates in the upcoming meeting in December, uh, but we will see interest rates go up. And okay, so uh, President Trump made it pretty clear when he became president that he was going to uh, look at all these trade deals that we have set up, and, and, and he's holding true to his word. I mean, I hear NAFTA is being uh, brought up in the news about once every other day, it feels like, so... Right now, we're going back to the table again with Canada talking about uh, some dairy issues that I, what I was reading about here earlier this week. So what do you see happening with, with NAFTA, and, and, and how do you see that those impacts uh, playing out through the rest of the year? Maybe if I knew what was going to happen with NAFTA, I definitely would not be hosting the farm report. That's for sure. That's a million-dollar <laughs> question. Right. You know, everyone wants to know something I, I'm trying to figure out every week on the show. If you tune in to U.S. Farm Report, you can bet probably there's at least one mention of NAFTA every week. And that's because right now we're in the thick that we're finishing NAFTA. Just wrapped up round four of NAFTA negotiation um, in, in the United States. Um, and, you know, ad grades have been pretty frustrated with the first three rounds. Um, you know, in, in typical fashion, we want progress and we want to act. You know, we don't want to have to wait and that negotiation. That's not how this is, this is, this is going so far. Um, leaders from Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. made it clear in the beginning that they wanted negotiations to move swiftly. But when you're trying to, to negotiate major issues, whether it be in the auto industry, whether it be with manufacturing, whether it be with agriculture and the dairy issues with Canada, there's no easy or quick fix to this. And, and that's what we're seeing. So round four just wrapped up this week. Uh, you know, we continue to hear the president have some uh, words uh, regarding NASA, threatening, threatening to, to nick trade deal, maybe, you know, saying a week two that he doesn't think that will come out with a, with a better deal. Um, so, you know, each day I hear mixed messages. Oh, we're going to nick that. Oh, oh, we're going to work through it. Oh, we're going to nick it now. Um, so this week, so round four negotiations wrapping up, uh, same story, not a lot of progress made. They did bring up some other key issues, including Canada's dairy policy. Uh, Canada standing very firm in its belief that it wants to, that, that protectionist kind of dairy policy that they have in Canada. They're sticking to it. They don't want to uh, budge on that. Um, you know, the president and, and his administration wants better access to Canada, not only for dairy, but also poultry. When you look at eggs, some of these other areas that maybe have not fared as well in the current NASA deal, uh, but that isn't happening. Auto, the, the same deal uh, with, with auto, just not making any, any headway, and these are some major sticking points within this trade deal. So after things wrapped up this week, uh, you know, the, the talk kind of turned. I feel like we had had pretty positive numbers. And then um, kind of it, it turned maybe a little bit more negative. I mean, it was definitely more direct uh, comments afterwards. Um, you had the, the Canadian foreign minister um, and her closing thoughts say that the United States is actually trying to turn back the clock on trade relations when it comes to NASA. She called those U.S. struggling. Um, you know, Mexico kind of alluded to the thing. And then we had Robert Whitehouse, like U.S. trade representative, uh, when he gave his final thoughts, um, he was really stern and, and stood his ground when it came uh, to the trade deficit. He's saying that uh, the U.S. trade deficit is increasing and needs to get fixed, and, you know, he, that needs to be hashed out in these deals. So, you know, we have four rounds of negotiations behind us. They are actually stalling the next round of negotiations. It's been pretty much, uh, I feel like it's been kind of a, um, rapid fire. You know, one week we're in the U.S., one week we're in Mexico, one week we're in Canada, one week we're back 
well, they're going to take a break. The next meeting isn't going to be until November 17th in Mexico uh, City is when they're going to, to meet. Originally, they had planned to meet later this month. So that means, Casey, it just kind of pushes back the timeline. We're trying to get these negotiations done before um, Mexico's uh, election um, comes into play, and then it's just going to be a lot tougher for some of these negotiations to go through. So they're, they're really trying to do this efficiently, but it isn't happening. And so now we've heard threats of maybe maybe um, you nix NAFTA as it is today, and maybe we seek more bilateral trade deals. Um, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, all I know is, you know, ag has fared pretty well when it comes to NAFTA. I completely understand that maybe there needs to be issues fixed within the auto industry, issues fixed within manufacturing, issues fixed with dairy, issues fixed with, with um, sugar coming in under the radar in the U.S. or under the cost of production that be subsidized in other countries. I get all of those points completely. But when you look at agriculture as a whole, and I talk to a lot of leaders um, as when it comes to NAFTA, it's a pretty positive view on NAFTA and what it's done uh, for U.S. farmers and ranchers. And I think it's been, you know, 23 years since, it's supposed to 23 years since NAFTA was negotiated. Um, you look how agriculture fared. Someone like me, uh, you know, in my, in my 30s, I, I really don't know what life is like without NAFTA because that's really all I've ever had, it's all I've ever known. And so we pull out of NAFTA all together, which is a possibility. Um, you know, I don't know what it's going to do to agriculture, but uncertainty is not good in markets. In our markets today, you know, we're having trouble with price that is. We don't need that uncertainty. Uh, Farm Journal has a Washington correspondent, his name's Jim Weekbrand. I call him off and I just about he's hearing and some of the issues that um, he's seen. And I asked him, I said, Jim, what happens if the U.S. mixes NAFTA? What happens if we pull out of this trade agreement altogether? And he said, Todd, you know, it would be a bad day for agriculture. But that's one question that no one in, no one in the administration wants to answer. And every time I ask, uh, we'll say, you know, we'll cross that bridge and we get there. So that kind of scares him a little bit because there's no backup plan there. So I'm hoping that we can come up with a deal. I'm hoping that at the end of the day, um, that the three nations can uh, make a deal that's, that's better uh, than it was. I mean, because a 23-year-old trade deal, of course, there's issues that need to be worked out. Uh, look at how much we 23 years. I'm just hoping that agriculture doesn't lose out in the end. Um, and I, I'll remain hopeful of that until with the final verdict. Yep. You know, that's where you're exactly right, where you we talk about NAFTA and how it's affected so much, of, especially like Mexico being one of our largest um, trade partners when it comes to agriculture. It's, it's it's such a, like you said, uncertain time that people are really kind of on edge and markets don't like that either. So <clears throat> that's uh, it's definitely something. No, and Clinton Griffiths, our own, he's the host um, you know, he was talking to some key grain buyers down there, uh, and, and Clinton asked him, they said, you know, as we begin to reconnect, kind of what are your thoughts? And basically, they said, we're, we're offended. We thought this was a really good trade deal. We thought that we had made some really good relationships within the U.S., um, and, and now you're talking about mixing this trade deal. Uh, but you have to remember, Canada and Mexico, when you look at it, I mean, number two and number three when it comes to, uh, to, to trading partners with the U.S. So these are two key buyers, and we just can't lose that overnight. No, we can't. And it's it's a it's a such a big issue that it's just something we have to take lightly and and not to take lightly and and deal with it accordingly. It's just so much so much hinges on yeah. it. You know, it's such a big deal. So, well, one last one last topic here, and then we'll wrap it up. When you look at you know 
the new Secretary of Ag, Sonny Purdue, and, and how he's taking a look at agriculture. What do you see as far as farm bill stuff and, and kind of where is all that stuff headed? Um, you talk about so much focus on NASA right now, and I feel like, you know, uh, the Farm Bill's taking a back seat. But in Washington, I know that leaders, I mean, we're continuing to hear about these Farm Bill, farm bill field hearings. You know, uh, it, this week I interviewed a USDA Deputy Secretary, um, Stephen Sinsky, and that name may sound familiar. Formerly, he was the, the um, CEO of American Soybean Association, ASA, for 21 years. Uh, so I had a good working relationship with him then, was able to interview him this week. Less than a, as When I interviewed him on Monday, he was a less than a week into the job. Um, but I asked him about Farm Bill. You know, he reminded me, ultimately, Congress is the one that has the lead on this. You know, Farm Bill, this is, a, this is kind of a, a project within Congress that they have to work on. Um, and we see that the, the um, Ag Committees do a good job of that and taking the lead on that. But he did say, you know, as USDA, as we work, you know, we've, we've implemented the programs in the past. We've had some big changes when it comes to, you know, implementing the ARC and PLC payments in the last Farm Bill and some other changes within the Farm Bill. Um, he said we are providing guidance to come, you know, just, just showing them kind of what, how the programs have worked, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Uh, but as I talked to some, some folks on the Hill and, and, and some analysts, uh, you know, Secretary Senate Purdue has been out kind of in the face of uh, – uh, in, in, of agriculture, he's really been out uh, promoting agriculture and doing exactly what an secretary is supposed to do. From the South, and so a lot of folks had worried that maybe he doesn't understand um, ARC, he doesn't understand PLC, he doesn't understand some of these Midwestern programs, like maybe some previous ag secretaries have. Um, but, you know, and I, I kind of asked um, the deputy secretary about that, uh, and, and because he does have a working knowledge, of course, of some of those programs being with ASA. But he said, you know, Ty, and that's why we have career people within in USDA. They're the ones that really implement these programs. They know how, how they work, um, what's worked, what hasn't. Um, so, so, you know, overall, you have those career people within USDA that really helps make those programs run smooth and get some guidance to, to Congress. Um, but no matter what, when you look at, at the Farm Bill this year, um, it's going to be, you know, some of these areas, some of these heavily, um, you know, highly paid programs are going to be scrutinized. You look at the funding pool and it's just getting smaller. Um, we're going to have to do more with less, and that's what we keep hearing from ag groups. So where that funding is, is going to come from, I'm not sure, but there are going to be some areas with a target on its back. And we know the last Farm Bill negotiation that was crop insurance that had a target on, target on its back. Um, I don't think that's, that's going anywhere. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how these ad groups kind of come together. But we have to have a unified voice. You know, we can't have all these different ad groups arguing on, on what should have more funding, where we should take some of this funding from. Um, we really have to have a unified voice uh, so that we can get a, um, a, a good farm bill passed. Uh, you know, there's so many other, when you look at tax reform, you look at some of these other issues uh, in Washington, there's a lot of, a lot of things to work through within Congress. So hopefully we can get a farm bill passed on time. You know, we know those those talks and, and, and uh, farm bill negotiations were extended last time. Um, but like I said, I'm just hopeful that, that agriculture can kind of have a unified voice on this, uh, come up with something that really works for U.S. producers, uh, helps U.S. producers. Uh, I think the thing that does benefit us now, uh, you know, it, it's a tough economic time within agriculture. We know that. I mean, there's some major headwinds within agriculture. But bringing that up and bringing that to light helps highlight the need for some of these farm bill programs versus, in, you know, looking at, at negotiating and, and looking at a farm bill and 
we had some of the highest prices we've ever seen when it comes to commodities. So that's another area that we're hearing from groups is, you know, now is, now is the time we need to be negotiating a new farm bill. Because now's the time that you need an adequate safety net. Now's the time that you need more funding for some of these other issues. Uh, so not sure how it's all going to, to play out, but this is all, that, you know, that we need to keep in mind as we, as we progress with the farm bill negotiation. Yeah, there's definitely some, it's just, it's such a, uh, econ, it's, there's so much going on right now that's just so unsettling for the ag market, you know, it's, it's just, it's just an odd time uh, to be, to be in here, but, well, I, f- I feel like we've, we've covered a, a pretty big swath of, of what's going on in ag right now. Time, if people want to find you on uh, social media, where would they find you at? Yeah, Twitter, uh, time underscore ag, you can find me on Twitter. Um, we have a U.S. Farm Report Facebook page. You can also find us there. Um, and always check us out, usfarmreport.com or agweb.com is an easy way to find our programs and also some of the stories I write. Awesome. So, okay, well, I think that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Tyne for being on this episode. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. This podcast can be found on various podcasts casting platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out.